tickets are now available for the 100th episode News Weekly live on January 19th, 7pm at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne. Head over to thesamishah.com, that's T-H-E-S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H dot com for the ticket link. Top Stories of the Week More Israel means less Gaza Also, pedantic anti-Semitism And more migrants, more problems All that and more on Newsweek Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. From the fresh water to the salt water, news now. The Israel war on Hamas is now passing its 70th day, which means it's been 70 days of Israel proving it will do whatever it takes to retrieve the hostages and wipe out Hamas, even if that means accidentally killing the hostages and making Hamas more popular in the region. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is worsening through it all, with the current estimates putting the death toll at 18,800 with over 50,000 wounded. And by the way, those 50,000 wounded doesn't mean people with sprained ankles as the first CNN journalist to enter Gaza without the IDF supervision discovered. As we leave Janan, Dr. Al-Nakbi comes back with the news of casualties arriving from the strike just 10 minutes earlier. A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. That's CNN's Clarissa Ward, a seasoned foreign correspondent who covered the capture of Saddam Hussein, the 2004 tsunami, and has worked as a field reporter for CBS and Fox News, for whom she provided coverage of the Israel-Lebanon War of 2006. So not an easily shocked journalist. And yet, even she was staggered by the scale of what's happening in Gaza. Now, the death toll in Gaza as a result of Israel's frenzy bombardment currently hovers at roughly 18,000. If you do the math, extrapolating as the UN says that two-thirds uh, of the casualties roughly are civilians, that uh, is about 11,800 civilians who have been killed in just over two months. And to give you a comparison, in the first year of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, according to an independent research organization, some 7,700 civilians were killed by U.S. forces. In 20 years in Afghanistan, according to independent research groups, some 12,000 civilians were killed. So in just two months, you're now approaching 12,000 civilians, and that's the same amount who were killed in 20 years Uh, during the U.S.'s war. So why is it a big deal that Clarissa Ward is saying this? After all, there have been other Western media reporters in Gaza, with the BBC and even CNN, along with many others, reporting from the crisis zone. Well, because all of those reporters entered only with the IDF's approval, which means what they showed us was with the IDF's approval. Here's a BBC correspondent saying so. While the BBC retained editorial control of his reports, the sections featuring the Israeli military have been cleared by the IDF. 
Now, before everyone gets all, OMG, the Jews control the media about this, it's actually pretty standard practice. When journalists enter any war zone while embedded with the military, that military demands final approval of content that's aired. The BBC just does the extra step of informing its viewers. And it's not like there haven't been journalists in Gaza. Lots of Palestinian reporters have been there, providing coverage in real time since this started. Something Clarissa Ward has been clear needs pointing out. One extra point that I really need to make here, Phil, because I think it's important. This was our first time being able to gain access into Gaza. But the journalists in Gaza have been doing heroic. They have paid such a high price for that. This is the deadliest conflict for journalists that we have seen in decades. More than 60 journalists in Gaza alone have been killed in the last two and a half months. That is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. So you have a perfect storm here with massive bombardment, an inability to create safe zones, an inability to get humanitarian access where it's needed, and incredibly brave journalists who are doing everything they can to tell the stories and bring the reality to the world, but the frustration of international journalists who can't get in to try to complement and supplement their efforts. See, those Palestinian journalists have been essential for getting footage of bombed Gazans out to the rest of the world. But to many viewers in America, and let's be honest, here in Australia, they lack credibility because of just how, you know, Palestinian-y they are. Sure, the reporters are literally dying for their job, and you can forgive moments of bias when they find out on air that their colleagues have just been killed or their families have been crushed to death, but as we know, it's not unbiased unless someone unquestionably neutral with a name like Clarissa Ward says it, and not a Muslimy, Arabi, brownie name like Muhammad Abu Hatab, a Palestinian journalist killed along with 11 members of his family when his house mysteriously collapsed on itself after an explosion that we don't know how that happened and we're not going to make any guesses because it's too early in the weekend to be labelled a Hamas supporter for having a less than five-star review of Israel's bombing campaign. The difference in who we believe and what we see can go a long way towards explaining why Israelis themselves are having such a hard time considering the deaths of Gazans as unacceptable, as explained by ABC's John Lyons, another guy who we can believe because his name is John, and everyone trusts a John, unlike, say, a a Ola Atallah, a Palestinian female freelance journalist who contributed to multiple media outlets and was killed in an Israeli airstrike on the house in which she and her family of nine were taking refuge. I've written a piece for the ABC website this morning saying how this is the tale of two wars, that how the, the, what we're seeing in Australia and other countries, the pictures we're seeing, those dreadfully confronting pictures of children, of, of injured children in hospitals, of mothers carrying their dead children, children. They're not seeing those in Israel. Each night in Israel, it's very much the sanitised coverage. You're rarely seeing any Palestinian victims at all. Um, the, the Israeli media tends to be showing that this is a clinical operation, it's a successful operation, and they're going through methodically and eliminating Hamas terrorists. But, of course, that's not the war that everybody else is seeing. That's not the war that the US Vice President Kamala Harris is seeing. And so Israelis are quite bewildered here. When you talk to them about the civilian uh, tolls, they actually don't really see what we are seeing in Australia. It's very much a bubble here in Israel. A bubble floating on a sea of Gazan blood. 
Being informationally isolated like this might be why Israelis are so mystified as to why the United States and other allies are now calling for Israel to stop doing indiscriminate bombing. And maybe more, you know, discriminate bombing? Israel is coming under pressure from key allies over its war in Gaza. After months of staunch support, U.S. President Joe Biden criticized Israel on Tuesday for, quote, indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. A vote by the U.N. General Assembly also indicates Israel's growing isolation on the world stage. Member nations overwhelmingly backed a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. But Israel insists it will persist with its air and ground offensive against Hamas, which is classified as a terror group by the US, the EU and several other countries. Now, there could be several reasons for Israel's unending commitment to bombing. It could be serious about not planning on stopping until every Hamas fighter is dead because that's its military goal. Or it could be serious about not planning on stopping until every hostage has been released because that's its humanitarian goal. Or it could be serious about not planning on stopping until everyone forgets just how much of this is Netanyahu's fault and he has a chance to stretch this up to the next election. And that's not me saying it, it's the senior Israel correspondent for France 24. Uh, that's the um, military's desired length of time, a few months. If you ask Benjamin Netanyahu, it should last for years, perhaps, until the next election, so he won't have to have any questions asked because nothing can be asked during a war. Iris Mackler there saying the quiet part out loud. Speaking of seeing the quiet part out loud, an unrelenting rise in anti-Semitism has seen lots of people feeling quite comfortable to say derogatory things about Jews under the guise of anti-Zionism. The latter is an accumulation of beliefs that range from Israel is an apartheid state to Israel should give all the land back to all the Palestinians while Israelis should also be killed en masse. And the former is the belief that all Jews control the media and banks and all Jews are evil and should be killed. The latter is a staple of many pro-Palestinian protests, and the former is mostly confined to every single Muslim household in the world. It's led to debates over whether or not phrases like from the river to the sea is calling for the extermination of Israel. That's a phrase that's been attributed to everything from Hamas to a one-state solution, and is currently popular with white people in the arts community who are wrapping a kafiyeh around their always was, always will be t-shirt. Now look, I'm not going to get into this debate. I can see how some people who use that phrase mean it as a call for peace across the region, while others may be using it as a call for the return of all Palestinian lands, which yes, just so happen to sit exactly where Israel sits. I personally think it's vague enough that it can mean both, depending on the person saying it. From the river to the sea, when said by a Hamas supporter or Hamas militant, does mean let's kill all Jews, and when said by a Melbourne stand-up comedian or indigenous Triple J fill-in presenter, means the same as this land was never ceded. And if you find that confronting, well, then that's fair as well. But for some, it might be a scary statement because they associate it with terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv. And for others, it's a benign thing to hashtag, like that time you put a black square on your Insta. Is it automatically a call for genocide? Probably not. No more than Black Lives Matter was never an automatic call for no one else matters, which some people insisted it was. But can it be sometimes? Definitely. The problem is Palestinian protesters aren't the only ones saying it these days. Two-state solution? What is you there did? still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realise the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but of October and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build but a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians 
living in a state of their own. Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realised in 7th of October. The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Well, then because how can there be moment, peace? In, no, how can there be peace in the reason there is no peace Israel is because the Palestinians... How can, with, without offering Mark, a state to Palestine, how Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? That's Zippy Hotovelli, the Israeli ambassador to the UK, who has previously come out against marriages between Jews and Arabs, wants global recognition for West Bank settlements, and has a long and well-documented history of denying the right of Palestine to exist. Basically, she thinks Israel should exist from, you guessed it, a body of fresh water to another body of seawater. And she's not the only one. Shlomo Kari, the Minister of Communications this week, tweeted, or X'd, or grokked, or whatever the fuck it is now, and he said, There will be no Palestinian state here. We will never allow another state to be established between the Jordan and the sea. Look, I know it sounds like I'm saying, ah, oh, yes, anti-Semitism is bad, but then so is anti-Palestinian rhetoric, so we shouldn't complain about the former while not complaining about the latter. And I know that's some false equivalency bullshit, so I'm not doing that. But I'm also definitely saying that anti-Semitism is bad, and the idea that Israelis should be kicked off a land they have now lived on for 75 years is ridiculous and scary for the average Israeli. But also, Israel should really stop electing politicians who keep saying Palestine shouldn't have the right to exist, because when you do that, everyone who keeps saying this is a genocide has at least one leg to stand on. Mostly because the other leg got blown off by an IDF bombing raid. Now, while all these semantic debates are happening, one group that's getting ignored while we all, myself included, rush to condemn Israel is Hamas. In case anyone's forgotten, this latest attack did start with Hamas killing about 1,200 people in Israel, most of whom were civilians. And as critical as I am of Israel and the lack of mistrust the average Israeli seems to have in its own corrupt government, Netanyahu isn't wrong when he says this could all end tomorrow if Hamas surrenders and hands over all the hostages. Except the terrorist group's leadership has made it clear it doesn't think the Gazan civilians' deaths are a problem for it. And it even said, quote, It is the UN's responsibility to protect Gazans. Which is strange given that Hamas was the government in Gaza until October 7th and had many times refused to allow any elections. Well, so far most of the Hamas leaders have been in Qatar, where the Qatari government has allowed them refuge, probably because they thought they might get a football team out of them or some bullshit. In the last few days, however, according to multiple news outlets, the entire Hamas leadership has disappeared and turned off their phones, which means they've gone into hiding probably in the hopes of not ending up as plot points in the inevitable sequel to the film Munich. From the Twitter to the Instagram news now. The Israel-Gaza war has impacted every part of the world in a way that the wars in Yemen and Darfur really wish they could manage. Even here in Australia, controversies related to the conflict have consumed the country, by which I mean a small cohort of people who spend way too much time online and are really obsessed with it, but no one else really cares. The most recent debate has been over the authenticity of the only time in the last few months that Australia made world news for something that wasn't related to shark attacks. 
Flares were thrown, anti-Semitic slurs chanted and an Israeli flag set on fire during that illegal pro-Palestinian rally last night at the Opera House. That rally took place on October 8th, shortly after the Israeli flag was displayed on the Opera House in solidarity with the victims of the terror attack. Now, I want to remind you that at that time, the attack wasn't even fully over yet, with some Hamas terrorists still fighting with Israeli police forces. And while the scale of the attack wasn't yet fully known, Footage showing rape victims and civilian murders had already made its way online, as well as word that hostages had been taken. So what exactly the protesters were protesting wasn't clear. Or rather, it was the moment you watched the footage from the protest. And anti-Semitic slurs chanted. In case you don't speak beep, that was Fuck the Jews, being chanted by a sizable group of people in a crowd. The next day, organisers of the protest even commented on how they were unhappy with the anti-Semitism on display at the rally that they organised to protest anyone sympathising with Israelis killed and raped and kidnapped on October 7th. Here's one of the organisers on ABC News. Um, you know, as we say in our statement, right at the end, there was a, a separate event organised by others. There was a tiny group of people um, who came and for a couple of minutes did chant a despicable uh, anti-Semitic chant. We've made it very clear they do not represent uh, anything to do with our movement. Um, they're not welcome. We, they were told to leave immediately. Um, ours has always been an anti-racist movement and we condemn all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. All right. So all of that means some group of people did say fuck the Jews at a rally where the deaths of Israeli civilians were being protested. Now that footage isn't the one that went viral internationally. Or it did, but it was quickly overtaken by another clip, which was posted online by the Australian Jewish Association, the AJA, which showed people saying, according to the subtitles, gas the Jews. That's the clip that got shared around the world. Now, everyone thinks the protest march had people saying gas the Jews and not the far more reasonable fuck the Jews. Now, it's also worth pointing out that the only video that had the gas the Jews quote was posted by the aforementioned Australian Jewish Association, which sounds like a legit representative group, but it actually isn't. It's headed by David Adler, a man who less than a year ago tweeted pictures of Stan Grant and asked if he was doing blackface. In fact, the actual representative Jewish body in Australia is the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council. And that's previously said about the AJA, quote, this organization and this person do not speak for us. They do not communicate what in any sense of the term can be regarded as Jewish values. Basically, David Adler's Australian Jewish Association is as legit as if I started a Fans of Tomatoes Association. Look, they're the devil's balls and you people are sick for eating them. Well, apparently that's the point of contention now, with journalist Antoinette Latouf posting a video to Instagram calling into doubt that gas chant. She worked on this investigation with Crikey, which is the name of an actual news outlet and not the parody name for an Australian newspaper in a bad 80s comedy. Here's a quick recap. The video was posted on October 10 by the Australian Jewish Association, who's, who started with a graphic saying uncut, mob, chance, gas the Jews and F the Jews, and it made headlines globally. The video is 59 seconds 
minutes long. It's all wide shots with various edit points. Quotes are in inverted commas that have been captured and it purports to show the large crowd chanting anti-Semitic tropes. Organisers of the pro-Palestine protest came out and said, yes, some young teens who were swearing quickly got asked to leave and they did. Both chants are anti-Semitic, but gas the Jews could be considered criminal as it incites violence. So no other social video, police body cam video, protester videos has gas the Jews. So there are growing questions about who said it, or whether anyone said it, and importantly, where the video and audio came from. Now, Premier Minz came out on October 11, condemning the protests, saying there's naked racism in the community and referred to incitement to violence. He also said that the next pro-Palestine protest wouldn't be going ahead. A month later, Minz introduces amendments to the Crimes Act to essentially make it faster and easier to prosecute someone for inciting violence against marginalised groups. And it's important to note, at this point, police haven't charged anyone for chanting gas the Jews. A university verification expert assessed the AJA video and audio in less than a day and shared with me that it is an audio-visual mismatch and that audio tracks had been repeated and that the video had been edited. The Premier's office wouldn't tell me whether the legislation changes are because of what they thought was being chanted or if it in fact, fact-check the video before reacting. New South Wales Police won't say it publicly, but I have said it privately to a barrister whose minutes I have that none of the police vision or other footage shows that this violent chant has been said. Now hear me out. I listen to that clip a lot. Way more than anyone not employed by the RMIT fact-check or neo-Nazi parties needs to. And I kind of am not so sure they do say gas the Jews. Here, I'll play it again. It sounds to me like, where's the Jews? The caption says, gas the Jews, but that was added by the AJA later. But then, where's the Jews doesn't make sense. Not that I'm expecting people who say fuck the Jews to make sense in the first place. Which, by the way, they definitely do say. It's much, much clearer in the audio, and that's not under dispute. But the problem is, the investigation by Antoinette and Crikey is now being used to make claims that there was no anti-Semitism at the protests at all, which there was. And that's not what Crikey and Latouf are saying, although they do seem to downplay the anti-Semitism that is confirmed. It is conceivable that someone, or some people, said gas the Jews. Maybe. But was it chanted loudly, repeatedly, and by a large group of people like this one video that's been shared globally suggests? Or was it even said at all? This is like the beheaded babies thing all over again. Everyone fixated on whether or not those babies killed by Hamas were beheaded when that was irrelevant. What mattered was that they were killed. The specifics didn't make the murder any more or less heinous. Similarly, whether or not they say gas or where is irrelevant when they do say fuck the Jews. At a protest which, let me once again remind you, happened right after the October 7th attack took place and before Israel had even begun its retaliation. And for a lot of Jewish people, this sort of semantic game is in and of itself evidence of anti-Semitism. The same way, for example, many Jewish people noticed how there was no sympathy shown for Israeli women who were raped by Hamas, with many even disputing the actual video evidence and survivor testimony itself. Or this statement by Antoinette Latouf posted a few days before where she said, Quote, I believe Israeli women. As a feminist, I am appalled by reports of sexual violence on October 7th. Sadly, there's almost never been a conflict where rape hasn't been used as a tool of war. This should horrify and galvanize the masses. It's also dangerous and disingenuous to discuss Hamas using rape as a tool of war without acknowledging that Israeli forces do so too, and have done so as long as there's been an Israel. 
wait. So if Israelis say Israeli rapes matter, then the correct response is actually all rapes matter? How is that an appropriate thing to say? The next time a woman is raped, should we see whether her nation's military also committed acts of rape against others before offering our support? Crikey itself has made a questionable choice recently as well. Another big controversy has been many Australian journalists signing a petition demanding fair coverage of the conflict. Now, full disclosure, I signed a similar petition myself in 2021, because if there's one thing we Australians love doing, it's making global conflicts about us somehow. We just don't like being left out. I went back and reread it recently, the one in 2021 that I'd signed, and I think the language of that petition was fairly balanced, and I had just had a chunk on Israel and Gaza deleted from my column by my editor at the Saturday paper. I was then, it seems, fired from that column for signing that petition, proving the point of that petition. Plus, it's why I started Newsweekly. So, you know, blame them then. However, I didn't sign the more recent petition, even though I was asked to by several colleagues. The reason being, I read it and I didn't agree with the language. The petition's wording, to me, felt too biased to be a call for unbiased journalism. But a lot of journalists did sign it, and then they got either reprimanded by their management or taken off coverage of the war. In response, Crikey published a full list of every Australian journalist and politician who has visited Israel, with the heading a running list of journalists and politicians who have taken part in organised tours to the Middle East on the dime of lobby groups or governments or at their own expense. The list is long, but it doesn't actually specify who went as part of a paid-for junket or paid for it themselves. Nor does it say why they went. It's just a list, without context, of anyone who ever went to Israel. Which feels... weird. Kind of gross, maybe a bit dodge, somewhat sus. Not anti-Semitic, but not not anti-Semitic. It's the kind of bad faith stuff that's happening all over right now. Just like everyone at a pro-Palestine protest or saying free Palestine is not Hamas, similarly, anyone with any association to Israel isn't automatically bombing Gaza. People on social media, you don't have to expect much better from. The press... You should, but it's starting to become obvious, even that's asking for too much. From the migrant to the rental crisis, news now. Since COVID lockdown ended, Australia's approach to migration has been the same as the Qantas board's approach to torturing passengers. We want to do it all the time and for no reason, really. Well, now that rental prices are so high that I'm earning several thousand dollars a week letting an international student sleep in the trunk of my car, his name's Dilip, he sleeps curled up around the spare tyre, the federal government has finally realised this might not be the best for Australia. Treasury believes Australia's net migration peaked last year at a record high of 510,000 people. The government is forecasting that figure will halve in the next two years, in part due to its plan. To curb temporary migration levels, fewer international students will be given visas and they'll be required to demonstrate stronger English language skills. Dodgy education providers will face more scrutiny, so too will students applying for multiple visas. The approach is sure to frustrate the university sector, which has worked hard to rebrand itself as a visa processing centre for people who don't speak English too goodly. However, if it works, it might provide the straining rental market some relief, provided there are no loopholes. 
like this one highlighted by the Australian Financial Review, that Indian students who graduated from certain degrees will be allowed to stay in Australia to work for up to four years because an existing free trade agreement with India signed by the Morrison government takes precedence over the Albanese government's migration reforms. Move over, Dilip. You're getting a roommate. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. Like I said, the live News Weekly is taking place, so please buy your tickets from thesamishow.com. It's on January 19th. Tickets will also be available at the Comedy Republic website or from Comedy Republic at the door. Show starts at 7 p.m. I have no idea what the show is going to be. I still haven't figured it out. I have no ideas what kind of structure it'll have or anything. All I know is it'll be fun. We can do it together. If there's anything you want to see at the Live News Weekly, anything you wanted me to do at the Live News Weekly, send me an email. Write me an email at samishah at gmail.com. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H at gmail.com. Or join my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash samishah. And you can communicate with me directly through all of that. I will definitely be doing a Q&A session. So if you do have questions you want me to answer about anything at all, I'm opening it up. Go right ahead. Send those questions through to me before the show starts. Otherwise, I'll see you right back here next week on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines. You guessed it. 